the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron and Ewan Levick. Mark Stevens, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? G'day, Grant. Uh, great to be here. I think this is our fourth podcast yes. together. Um, so uh, fantastic to have the opportunity to talk about Indopac this year and uh, everything that's happening or not happening in defence, as the case may be. <laughs> Indeed. And Ewan, you're on the show once again. Thank you. Oh, good, Grant. Good to be back. Yeah. So, Ewan, I'll let you throw the first question. Yeah, look, so Mark, I think there's no secret, we've talked about this before, right, that industry have its, has its back to the wall at the mm. moment. And we're hearing from you previously, but also from other people, that this mm. is the worst it's ever been, worst people have ever seen it. Mm. Um, is that the case? Has Indopat confirmed that for you? Uh, look, I think it's interesting being on the floor at Indopac this year. So uh, I think the actual floor space is uh, smaller but it feels like there's more people here. There's, there is a lot of conversation going on. Uh, you know, I think we've talked before about the fact that, uh, you know, our assessment is that there are about, you know, 3,200 companies in the Australian defence ecosystem, of which 18 are listed, but 2,950 are micro to small. And, you know, we've probably seen about a 10% bleed, we think, out of that 2,950 group of people who just... Uh, they've just lost the ability to st stay in the defence ecosystem. Uh, six months is the critical horizon for small Australian defence companies. We're, you know, we're well through that point now. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think there's still, you know, a reasonable amount of goodwill out there in the market. But, you know, we're hearing from even the large primes that uh, there's, you know, real concern now about... Uh, the funding envelope for defence and whether there's um, there's really going to be enough work here to justify the sort of sizes of the footprints that they've developed over the last decade or so in this market. So it's not just the small guys, the large guys as well. You know, they've got their spend here in Australia is discretionary and they can easily spend that somewhere else in a better market, you know, which is better resourced and, and more definite about the direction that it wants to go in. So I think that's, that is a massive issue for us, no question. So we've got SMEs then trying to survive mm. now and we've got primes looking at market withdrawals we've got job losses yeah. yet we still have this massive capability uh, ambition that we need to deliver mm. so where's this all going to leave us well it, we have this massive capability gap mm. you know which you know i think that's the way to look at it so how do you you know how do you fill that you know i think as we've spoken before you know our view is that dsr is a platform strategy um, those platforms, the majority of the land ones, are now contracted and they're on, you know, being delivered. Uh, you know, high Mars and um, new helicopters and that, and that sort of thing. Uh, the capability gap in Navy, by, by not getting better, gets is getting worse. You know, it's not it's not static. And um, you know, I think we're seeing in, in the last couple of days some announcements, you know, from people like BAE and others. So obviously vertical launch systems have become the sexy new thing in maritime. So there's, you know, there's this sort of uh, VLS uh, race on on the floor of Indopac who's going to be able to have the most, you know, we're told that that it, to a certain extent it's being driven by the latest Chinese platform, which I think has 113 VLS. Um, that's pretty stupid, really. Mm. Uh, but... Um, 
you know, VLS doesn't solve the problem if you're not building the ships. Mm -hmm. You know, you can you can have a thousand VLS if you wish. But so, you know, I think the opportunity in maritime is going to be who who's going to be able to deliver that capability gap, or who's going to be able to solve that capability gap fastest. And uh, you know, this week there's been some announcements about Navant from Navantia and um, and BAE. Uh, you know, Babcock have a very good solution in the in Arrowhead. You know, a ship a year. They'll, they'll be able to produce on drum beat as long as the ADF doesn't want to change the configuration. Ah. <laughs> you know, which is a big if. But, uh, you know, our view is that that's a really good solution for Navy and uh, because there's certainty. And uh, all those ships will be delivered well within the time frame, I think, the first the delivery of the first Hunt class. So there, there are solutions. Uh, but, you know, uh, by doing nothing, uh, the capability gap continues to widen. And I know that that is a in desperate concern to senior leadership in defence. So, you know, hopefully we can get some answers. But, you know, I don't know if it's going to happen this year, mm. but, you know, in billion first quarter. Okay. The, um, you did touch very briefly there on literal, and mm. we were kind of expecting that there might have been an announcement mm. about that that topic. I was really again. hoping on, on one this week. Yeah. So... We're optimising army for literal manoeuvre. Okay, mm. where's our announcement of, of mm. who's winning? Do you, mm. do you have anything to say on that front? Yeah, look, um, you know, my my view is that, uh, but you know, we have a, 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 an interest in this. That you know, Burton has the best solution. Uh, so we'll see. You know, we'll see what happens. Um, I think that the literal manoeuvre decision has been caught up in the surface ship review and the IIP. I, I don't think the program's at risk. In fact, I think it's maybe likely that there's going to be more platforms rather than less. Uh, that's just my view. I, I haven't heard that, you know. <laughs> but um, you know, I just think that's that's you know what we're feeling. Um, but it's, you know, there's no question that the best way to, to start supporting Army now that it's made the hard decisions on its structure, its refocus, is to start giving them the vessels that they need to be that light amphibious force or the heavy amphibious force, depending on which uh, which geography you're looking at. Um, Army needs those boats. Mm. You know, they don't take a long time to build. Frankly, we should be getting on with it. You know? And and the effect that that would have on industry uh, would be fantastic. Mm. You know, it would, it would you know. I think people would feel that we've finally turned the corner on uh, on addressing the capability gap, and I think there'd be a massive amount of energy in the market. Well, which comes to the point on the shipbuilding review, as mm. you know, we're all it's been delivered to government, we're all still waiting on it. We heard initially that it was going to be early summer that it would come out. Now the rumour is that it will be out with the May budget next year. Mm. Where whenever it comes out, mm. no matter which of those it is, it's still a massive delay. So Huge. programs yeah. like eighty seven ten, if they're waiting on this, mm. so Burden is just sitting around waiting for this decision to come out. Mm. The rest of industry is waiting for that to come mm. out. Why can't government move faster? Like why? Why do they need to sit mm. on this for so long? Uh, this, you know, this is probably off script, I think, but, um, you know, in my view, I, I think that um, fundamentally I don't think the government really sees the same level of risk that we see in the delay, mm -hmm. which I think is a massive concern. Mm -hmm. um, I think we all, you know, we all understand that there's, that there's uh, you know, challenges in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, you know, it seems that in the... In, you know, we could get to the end of the first term of this government and we don't have any substantial defence procurement decisions sort of, you know, underway, if you accept that there's likely to be an election in quarter four next year. Mm. 
uh, I think that that is yeah, that is a massive concern. You know, uh, you, you, when you produce the DSR, what you do is you create an enormous amount of energy. Mm. If you don't follow that up, then by decisions by government to to keep that energy going, then it, in in many respects it's worse because mm-hmm. you establish an expectation and then you fail to follow through. So, um, look, look, we we think that we're going to start seeing suspending. Uh, in late February, we think the internal version of the IOP will likely be around defence for comment. And I think people who have money who aren't spending at the moment waiting for the IOP signpost will start spending. So hopefully that's a good thing, you know, especially people like um, SOCOM, you know, who, you know, who are quite well resourced but a bit reticent to, uh, to commit to anything. Uh, but if the IOP doesn't appear until the end of quarter one in the uh, in the uh, industry release, um, we're well through the budget process at that stage, and so you know suddenly you're trying to start, you're trying to shoehorn a whole heap of strategic procurement decisions into the back end mm. of the budget when it's a, it, it's you know presumably going to be an ERC or somewhere. Mm. Um, you've got problems mm. right just on the cycle, um, so. Um, you know, we, I think we're just hoping that that the, ship, the surface ship review may come a bit earlier. I mean, it, it's done, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's no reason mm-hmm. why it can't be uh, it can't be released. Uh, you know, in the comments we've heard by Wendy Malcolm, you know, she's saying that it, it's, it'll be uh, there'll be news soon. I'm not sure that Wendy's soon is Ooh. industry soon. Right. <laughs> you know, there seems to be a bit of a disconnect there as far as uh, timeframes are concerned. And, you know, I do wonder, you know, once those decisions are made and we've got a, a bit of certainty what's going to be left mm-hmm. in industry when you look around mm-hmm. and because some of the, you know, the biggest players in uh, defence industry here are telling us that um, that, that, their, their, um, that their parent companies in the US in particular are doing, you know, quite detailed uh, analysis now about whether the Australian market is... Uh, is for them, and I think the second thing that is of concern is that everyone we're talking to in the US, and I know this is the case with senior figures in the ADF as well. That the Americans are saying, "Look, you know, we love you guys, but when is the money going to follow mm. the, the, the commitments that you need to make to AUKUS?" And I, I think there's a very real concern that the US will act unilaterally, and that we're trying to catch up mm. because they're not going to wait. Yeah, you know, they've got money to spend now. Um, and I think in some respects that's the worst possible outcome. That's raising the question of does Australia have any money to mm. spend? I mean, we've sent a lot of assistance to Ukraine, yeah. but the government hasn't topped up the coffers to cover that. Mm. So mm. defence is having to find that money within current operational yeah. budgets. Yeah. So there's been some talk on the floor that, mm. you know, why don't they just open up and say, you're going to have to wait another 18 months mm. until we can spend because then everyone's not left hanging. Mm. They can go and find other mm. ways of staying alive. Uh, I'm not sure what the number is that we get, that the department's going to hand back to mm. government. But uh, some people are saying it's as high as $4 billion. So uh, if that's the case, then, you know, the risk is that Treasury or Finance say, well, that's the new... Benchmark for defence spending, you know, fifty-two minus four. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, you know, there is an issue about getting money, getting the money out the door. You know, it's not as though there aren't, you know, a, a heap of really good opportunities to spend that money on. Um, 
but uh, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I you know, I think when you know when we book, talk to people in government, they say that they feel as though they've already done too much for Australian defence industry. All that. And you talk to industry, yes, yes. and they say, "Well, the government's done nothing." But, but if you think about it, yeah, you know, through their lens, so they're saying, "Look, we, you know, we signed AUKUS, uh, we signed up for the Virginias, uh, you know, we've signed the SSN AUKUS program, we've established the ASA and the regulator, we've given them, you know, eight billion dollars or whatever it is. Ooh. You know, that that's our role at the top level. Right. Now it's industry's job." To get on and start doing what they need to do to deliver those programs, and I, and I and I think an element of that is probably true. Uh, I think that um, Australian defence industry has has become a little bit dependent upon government doing some of their heavy lifting. Mm. But having said that, when you've got you know large US defence companies like HII and Lockheed Martin wanting to do local manufacturing here. Um, and looking for you know some support from the government to make that happen, and that support's not forthcoming, then it, it, there, there, there's other opportunities there that we could be you know leveraging or act, act, actioning that um, that are uh, you know I think the messaging from the government is look that's a commercial decision for you you guys company X and Y to make. We don't see that we've got a role to play in that, and, and I think that that is you know significant concern. Mm. Yeah. Do you think there's an element here of death by review, of Australian yeah. industry suffering death by review? You know, the, mm. the decisions that <clears throat> came out of the DSR in terms of long-range strike were predicated on strategic assumptions or an analysis of our strategic environment mm. that fundamentally hasn't changed in 20 years. You know, the mm. speed of China's rise may mm. have come faster than we've expected, but the general direction of travel hasn't changed. So yeah. if we needed long-range strike in 2023 and we needed mm. that refocus that focused force in 2023, we needed it in 2012. You know, the direction Absolutely. of travel hasn't mm. changed. Mm. If the Hunter class needs 96 VLS in 2023, mm. it needed it in 2018 when the That's right. was decided. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But industry have, you know, well, Australia's defence sector is subject to these reviews that come out mm. in the DSR. Now we're all waiting on the shipbuilding review. Mm. Review after review. And no, gov no, no author, review author is going to come back and say, oh, no, actually, everything's fine. The mm -hmm. fact that the Reviews Commission means they're going to come back and they're going to say, oh, no, you know, we need to change all these things. But as a result, we have an industry that mm. every few years is almost upended mm. by, you know, all these all these new focuses mm. and things. So how can how can industry here and how can these overseas primes commit to Australia mm. in the long term, mm. knowing that even a program as large as the attack class mm. can be, you know, canned on a review or, yeah. you know. But in, you know, um, in defence, nothing gets better with age. You know, <laughs> it, 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 it's so true. And, um, I, you know, I think we've got a government which is less um, comfortable with the way in which, with the decisions that it, it needs to make in the defence and national security space. And so it's, uh, it, 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 its method in this term is really to try and get people who do know to comment on a whole, you know, a whole range of factors, the OEO or you know, yeah. uh, uh, base disposition, or you know, uh, infrastructure in the north, or uh, you know, uh, surface ships, um, to help them inform them about what they should do. So it's a bit like you know, policy by outsourcing in in, in, a, in a funny sort of way. Um, but you, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, the, I think the problem we've got is we can't get ahead. Um, we can't get ahead of the problem. So, you know, you're right. You, you, in, two, in 2018, you make a decision to buy the top 26. Well, it, that but doesn't doesn't had, didn't exist in at that time. So it was mm. it was an idea on paper, right? 
And so by the time the, you know you actually do the development of that concept into something you can build, and then then the government makes some or the defence department makes some decisions about you know some changes to that boat, um, then the, the actual strategic um, situation that that um, that helped decide the selection of that platform over others continues to move on. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we're we're already you're right. We're already behind in 2018. You know, here we are in, in 2023. Uh, you know, frankly, I think you know BAE hasn't done a great job on that program. It hasn't it hasn't managed the messaging well. It hasn't managed the client well. Um, but you know, to be fair to them, um, the government hasn't done all that well either. Mm. Well, the department hasn't done all that well either. And so while all that sort of dysfunctions happening. Really, you know, the strategic environment just continues mm. to march on. Yeah, you know, and so it, it becomes, you know, fairly well impossible to catch up until you have a decision like we had yesterday, which is, oh, we're going to build ninety six VLS now. Yeah, you know, which is a, which is a condition of the situation that we find ourselves in. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, I think every single decision that we're making at the moment, we could have made, you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago and the fact that we're not making them means that the strategic consequence of that puts us you know 15 or 20 years behind whereas maybe in 2018 we're six or seven years behind it's like we're racked in almost indecisiveness you know we're seeing on the floor of indopac industry are coming to the maritime space with a realization that the small the cheap and the many seem to be the way forward i mean there's so many autonomous underwater vehicles in that showroom Hmm. Yet the debate in defence is, you know, about how many of these large, expensive, um, mm. but highly capable platforms mm. we need, like the Hunter class. But that's obviously mm. quite a gap in the understanding of the future of the maritime yeah. space. And that, to me, comes back to the indecisiveness mm. uh, that we're talking about, mm. where the, the strategic circumstances we're in march on and mm. we consistently change our minds on what exactly we want to do about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I, you know, we, we sort of call it the unvirtuous circle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, where um, you've got aspirations to do things and you know what you need to do. And I think people in the ADF in particular, they, you know, they're, so, they're such good people and they're so motivated to do, you know, great things. But if, if – and the way in which government sends signals about support for defence is through funding. Mm. That's the mechanism. You know, they can say for the, all that they like, they can do a base visit, you know, they can shake hands, they can – you know, tell the people that, you know, soldiers, sailors or, you know, airmen and women have, what a great job they're doing. But if they're not giving them the money, mm-hmm. then, you know, the, it, the, there's a disconnect there. And so I think whilst, you know, whilst we ha- we're underfunded and, and it looks like we're going to continue to be underfunded for some time, then the messaging that sends to the ADF is that, look, you know, it, what you're doing is good but it's it's not important. Mm. And, and so, therefore, you don't have the energy that comes um, from the support that's evidenced by the spend. Mm. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of that. You know, yeah. you know, at the highest level, people are trepidous. And if you talk, as we do to them, they'll tell you that, you know, they're spending all their time trying to work out what not to fund. Mm. It takes three times longer. It's destructive of energy and morale. Um, and it, it causes a lot of internal competition, which is unhealthy. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a feature of the senior leadership in the ADF in more recent times is that they're very tight. You know, uh, the chiefs, you know, get on well. You know, they're, they're, they're tired. You know, CDF, CDF, 
uh, it's important that those, you know, um, uh, Greg Milton, that it's important that those guys, JJ Fruin and others, that they're all on the same page. But, uh, you know, when they, when they look at the jobs they've got to do, the only way that they can do those jobs in a way which allows them to perform is to, is to compete with their mate next to them for their, for their funding. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's not like, although I think there is, in the background, I think there are starting to occur, you know, some significant conversations between the chiefs and government about saying, okay, well, you know, you've delivered the DSR, you know, we've done what you asked us to do. Now we're, you know, we're, we're, we're operationally incapable because mm. the force is hollow. You know, we don't have the decisions, uh, the funding's not there. So, you know, what do you want us to do now? Because uh, we've done our part and um, uh, and so this is the consequence. Mm. You need to make a decision about whether you're happy for the army to be, um, to, you know, restructured but uh, still being capable of really doing mm. the job you want it to do. Uh, so are you prepared to accept that from a risk, risk perspective? Because if if you choose to activate the army tomorrow, the army that you think you're going to get is not it's what the army you have. Exactly right. Yeah, and yeah. you're going to have lead times. That okay, we pull the trigger. This is what we want. This is what we want it to be. They, the government finally makes up their mind. Mm. Defence finally acknowledges what they want. Everyone's in agreement. Government says, by the way, here's this miraculous big bucket of money. Now go make it so. Mm. Mm. We're well, not going to get things no. quickly even with minimal minimum viable product and concept and things like yeah. that capability it, as we've been saying there this should have been done ages ago but it wasn't so great we're here now mm. how do we get to the point where we should be mm. and is it just throwing buckets of money and hoping it sticks mm. so simon stewart has this saying which is you know you you go to war with what you've got mm. i think when he first started talking about that um, the, the strategic reality of what that means was lost on the fact that it gave people some comfort that, you know, whatever's in the queue store or the stuff in the queue store, we'll go and grab that out in the case of any tributane and off we go, mm. right? Um, but, but the strategic um, uncertainty is that, you know, if we, if we have to do that, mm. You know, we're in the hurt locker. There's no question mm. about um, about that. So, um, you know, I think that was clever on the chief's part. I, you know, I'm not sure whether it was intentional or not, but you know, in 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 most respects, what it does reveal is uh, there's just a significant amount of risk that the force is managing, um, given that you know, in, in some time in the foreseeable future, and you know, if you believe. What the intelligence community is saying, you know, 27, 28, something mm. like that, 29, that, that, that we're going to be activated in, in some sort of way in the Indo-Pacific, well, um, uh, you know, th there's, uh, there's massive risk mm. to members of the Defence Force and, and I think that's another factor. If you've got a constrained budget and you're trying to work out what you're going to spend and you're in the ADF and you're, and you're a senior leader there, you're looking at it through that lens. You know, if we if we choose to if we have to go and mobilise in some way with the money that we've got now, what are the, what are the bets we can place, which we know will reduce the risk? Mm -hmm. You know, and um, and you know, quite rightly, I think there's a lot of robust conversation about that mm. in in senior amongst the senior leaders because everyone has a view, of course, and no one's wrong. Mm. You know, it's about who's the most right. Mm. Well, 2027 is 
by my maths, the end of the mm. next term of government. Mm. Mm. So if we have an election in November next year, that government is the one that could be making that decision. That's right. With Hunter still not here, with AUKUS still not here, mm. uh, dealing with what we've got, as you said, mm. uh, yeah, it's going to be an interesting time. And we're probably not going to have an industry because they're going to turn around and do FMS mm. for everything because, oh, we need it now. We need it all now. Mm. It's not available now, though. Yeah, and that's the next thing is you've already mentioned that the Americans are waiting. Where are we? Where are we? But mm. what if they have a change mm. of leadership yeah. and they decide to become rather more insular, shall mm. we say? And thanks, Australia, you've been great, but we have our own problems. Mm. Uh, yeah, I noticed yesterday in The Economist that um, they said that if an election was held in the US this week that uh, Donald Trump would be returned. Uh, you know, I, I think we can't be blind to the bigger, you know, uh, strategic geopolitical uh, circumstances of our, you know, closest ally currently in the US and what the implications of, of that are. But, you know, we, what we do need to control is what we can control. Mm. And I think there seems to be this logic disconnect. You know, we, we um, there there are, there are a whole lot of things that we that, that we can do and that we can um, plan for or activate or implement, but there seems to be you know what we you know what we're Eric and what you call this logic disconnect where it, it seems it seems abundantly clear to people what needs to be done, but for some reason, uh, you know that um, that that that, um, that doesn't appear to be a shared view. Um, across the ecosystem, the defence ecosystem. So we know that the intelligence community is saying that that um, the rise of China is an issue. Um, we, you know, we know that we that we're underdone in in just so many areas that which need to be funded. Uh, we you know we've got a pretty good idea about what the time frame is, right? So they you know they're the knowns if you like, or the you know the known unknowns. Yet we've got this stasis. Mm. In the um, in the ecosystem, and it starts with government, and it ends with industry being you know largely incapable of doing the job that everyone thinks they're going to be able to do. Does it start with government, Mark, or do you think it starts with a with the public understanding of mm. where our defence mm. force is at? I mean, ultimately, yeah. in a democracy, government yeah. will act on public opinion. I'm, mm. I'm not convinced the public has the same level of understanding of how hollow yeah. the force is and what the capability risks are that we're mm. now realising mm. to the extent that obviously industry would um, mm. and even the government would. So maybe that's an in, maybe that's industry's problem. Maybe industry hasn't been communicating that but, effectively. But it's hard when government doesn't let you because they've tromped down. So I, get the story. so I think one of the responsibilities of government is, is to have serious and mature conversations with its citizens about issues that are of national significance. And if you think about back across our political system, really the last time that we did that uh, was, you know, John Howard talking about GST or and, and gun reform. Mm. You know, if you go back to Howard and Keating, they were the masters in engaging the community and having those conversations about the big, you know, the big issues, which the you know, first one that was reflective of that was the accord. You know, mm. if you, you know, we, we seem to have lost that. Um, ability in our uh, political system, it, you know. I think it's it, you know. I, I think part of the challenge is that that um, politicians just see risk stamped all over that process because yeah. you know, the media would, you know, for better or worse, you know, might weaponise that. And and um, but we absolutely do need to have uh, a, 
that strategic conversation about what is happening in in the region. And you know, I think uh, uh, there was a conversation that, that I was at uh, Indo-Pak dinner last night, which was around how do we sort of rationalise the prime minister, you know, going to China, trying to sort of normalise trade with the uh, with the country that poses the greatest national security risk mm-hmm. to us. You know, how are those two things compatible and, and what does that tell us about our values? Well, uh, in my mind, you know, what it tells us is that that we're not values-led mm. at the moment. You know, we're, fin- we're financially led and I know that there are a lot of exporters in Australia who, you know, who have had a really difficult time because of China's um, use of imports, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a tool to try and force us to be not, you know, not as in independent as we've been. Uh, but I just think it's, I just think the whole thing sends a wrong message. You mm. know, I, I think, you know, we should be saying to them, to the Chinese, well, you know, we're, we're happy to have those conversations with you when you choose to be, to follow the rules-based order and be mm. a good global citizen. And, it, and I, you know, I think that if you look at what the, what's happening between the Philippines and China at the moment, mm. what a brave nation they are. Mm-hmm. You know, they're doing what everyone else knows needs to be done. Um, and, uh, you know, I noticed that, um, you know, Greg Bilton and Joint Operations Command did an exercise up in the Philippines a few months ago where we put heavy armour across the beach mm. in the Philippines for the first time. You know, I don't think anyone should um, uh, should underestimate the significance of that. And we did the same in Indonesia, you know, um, uh, you know, a couple of months ago as well. Yeah, you know, I just think there's a... Yeah, we're not being values led in the way in which we should be, and it, it's just it just sort of goes into this melting pot of 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 the sort of lack of this 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 uncertainty that we're saying. You know, mm. what's the messaging? So defence is underfunded. We've got a whole heap of reviews. We've got a you know the stasis around decision making and, and mobilising capability. Um, our greatest threat is China. The prime minister's over there trying to get trade sorted out. Mm. You know, I don't like. There's just so many. Mixed messages in yeah. there about where we should be. Is it any wonder that the idea is struggling to sort of work out? But it's not. I mean, it's not an intellectual stretch to realise that we can have a strong trading relationship with China and a strong Australian defence force. Those two things are sure. No, expensive. that's true. Yeah, and you know, there's also there's interest from increasing interest, I think, in Australia from the Asian powers, like South mm-hmm. Korea and Japan. Mm-hmm. And as far as you know, being values led goes developing that defense relationship with those countries i know we've got the reciprocal access agreement with japan i understand we're looking to a reciprocal access agreement with south korea as well Mm. but those are the Mm. kind of relationships that you know australia Mm. needs to be developing particularly from a defense industry point of view and obviously hanwha winning land for 100 phase three was good news phase three got cut back that wasn't such good news for hanwha but the the goodwill is obviously there the capability that those particularly south korea can Mm. deliver to australia is also massive but from an Australian point of view, or from maybe their point of view, mm. Australia looks almost so exclusively to the US and the US mm. primes that it, mm. it would be difficult if you were sitting in a boardroom in South Korea to make the case to invest yeah, in Australia. Mm. So mm. that's again another message that we. Well, well look, you know, look what's happened in the Pacific. You know, when we not only has our relationship with our closest and, and dearest neighbour, the, the Kiwis, sort of, you know, suffered mm. over the last few years, but. Australia and New Zealand working together to shore up and support the Pacific is, was off the table for a while. Now we're trying to you know, massively catch up mm. there and open the door for you know uh, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative 
don't know if you saw there was a, um, a, a there was a, a report released this week about the amount of aid that's been flowing into the Pacific from China. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, forty eight percent of Tonga's GDP is uh, is debt to China. Wow. You know, how do we allow that to happen? And but if 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 you know where to look, you know what we're seeing it, uh, with the ADF is a lot of work being done. You know, by Angus Campbell and the senior leadership in defence to to sort of stitch what you talk about together. Yeah. So there are a lot. There's a lot of um, conversations going on. Um, you know, the ADF is is, is you know, I'm, I'm guessing there's a strategy there, but the ADF is, is being used to do what it does well, which is to you know go into these countries, go into these countries and. Um, um, and forging your relationships with them. Uh, you know, we've just had the appointment of the Deputy Commander for Three Brigade as mm. a PNG officer. Mm. Who, who saw that coming? Mm. You know, f- but what a fantastic idea, mm. you know, and and uh, that the Lieutenant Colonel who's been appointed ha- has largely come up through that support network um, through um, through higher education here in Australia. So, you know, I think he was uh, he's an RMC graduate, you know, he did his staff college here. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that that whole um, infrastructure enabled that appointment. Yeah. Mm. Because it's not as though we've said, oh, we're going to have two deputy commanders. You know, the current deputy commander has been posted and this guy's coming in and he's the man. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it's I think it's one of the best things I've seen mm. um, in uh, in defence circles, you know, for a long time. So there is some good news. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, you know, I, I, I think oh, I think the things that we do, we do well, mm. right? And I th- and, and the challenge is to enable the ADF to do more things well. Yeah, you know, it's not as though yeah we've given them this much and it and it's you know the, the outcomes aren't great. You know, pretty much everywhere you touch the organisation where it is funded. It's doing great work. Yeah, it's yeah. just about opening the the aperture and giving them more opportunity to do more great work. And yeah. I, and I think, you know, the, the the quality of those outcomes don't don't deteriorate when you do more of it. You you, you just actually find that the quality is sustained or even improves the more activated that uh, the ADF becomes. So yeah. that is the good news. Uh, I suppose it comes back to what Simon Stewart has said, is that, you know, you go to war with what you've got. Yeah. Looking at Ukraine, I think, is a mm. good example of what it's like to go to war with what you've got yeah. and realising that what you've got isn't ac- adequate. No, that's right. And then spending, you know, they've spent two years mm. trying to bridge that capability gap whilst yeah. fighting a war. And yeah, that's the worst case outcome for us. So that's like what was it like changing the tires on the car as a child in the freeway, right? Yes, exactly. So that, I mean, that's that's the situation that I think everybody understands. Yeah. We want to avoid. But who would have thought we'd be going into Christmas with two major conflicts? Mm. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's and a uh, third bubbling. Mm. It's awful, you know. Mm. And you know, I think the part that maybe government doesn't fully understand is there's a there, there's a peace dividend that comes. From overinvestment in the ADF, because mm. it acts as a, a, in, in the sense of its of its ability to be, you know, a tool of deterrence mm. in the region. Uh, that's another discontinuity as well, because you think, okay, well, you know, if if, if the strategy is to deter uh, conflict with China, um, it, it, or you know, or China and North Korea or Russia working together in the Indo-Pacific, then the strongest, the stronger the force is. The less likely it is to occur. So, but you know, by underinvesting, what you're doing is 
You might have, you're saving some money now, but you're going to spend a lot more money later. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, yeah. it's 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 a false economy. Which is why that trading, what I said before about the trading relationship and the a strong military being yeah. not mutually exclusive, is important yeah. because no, to have sure. one, you need to, to have the other. Yeah, you do, but, but you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a simple infantryman, so you know, I, I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm uh, I don't think too deeply about things. But I do wonder about our, you know, the, our export market in iron ore to the Chinese, you know, mm. you know where that ends up, how it's mm. used. Um, <laughs> Does it come back in a painful yeah, no, way? And, yeah. and, and exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and that, they're decisions for, you know, for people other than myself. But uh, it just seems to me we've got so many levers that we could be pulling. You know, pulling. We're a rich nation. Mm. We've got a, we've got a, a you know, massive uh, surplus, I think $60 billion mm. at the moment. Uh, we've got a, we've got a you know massively increasing or you know deteriorating uh, geopolitical situation. Um, you know, uh, there are exports leaving our country that we know have been you know turned into equipment that could be used against us. Mm. Um, we've got an opportunity to build the force with a view to deterrence. Um, you know, the risk to members of the ADF is increasing by the by the uh, decision gap. Mm. As far as major procurements are concerned, yeah, there's just there's so much going on mm. in that space. But I think you're right, you and yeah, it's not rocket science. No, <laughs> you, you know, and, and they're all smart people. You know, uh, Richard Miles, Pat Conroy, you know, uh, the Prime Minister, senior ADF leadership. They're all bright people, mm. right? And yeah, there's a lot going on. They're all, but there always is a lot mm. going on. So I do think you know that if we you know we we, if we sort of come back to the start. You know, um, uh, if, if, if we think about the challenge through the lens of, of, uh, of being able to deter conflict, then what you'd be doing now is you'd be placing some bets to improve the quality and the capability of the ADF as part of a broader mechanism of just sending a message that, uh, you know, we're not going to allow ourselves to be um, subordinate to China, and uh, so you know, if you accept that as being the baseline, well, then you'd expect to see a whole lot of different behaviours. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for coming on again, Mark. It's been it's been it's brilliant as always. I didn't, we didn't we didn't get on to decisions about Black Hawks or Apaches <laughs> or you know uh, anything. Yeah, but, my, um, my aviation bug has not been fulfilled, but that's okay. <laughs> well, look, I, you know, I think I think Jeremy King's the luckiest guy in defence because you know, his money's locked in. You know, yeah, those helicopters true. are coming. Uh, so he, you know he's the happiest guy in town, um, but um, uh, you know I think you know we say this every time we get together on podcasts. I know, but you know the next you know uh, three or four months are going to be fascinating. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. But, and but hopefully better. You know I think uh, you know if we if we're serious about having a defence industry in this country, we, we just it's just got to improve. Yeah, you know, we're running out of runway. And, you know, I think as we said last time, we thought we were running out of runway as well. We we're even closer to the end of the runway now than we were when we last spoke. But uh, uh, thank you for the opportunity. It's always a pleasure yeah. to catch yeah. up with you guys and um, uh, and have a good rest of, uh, of uh, Indopac. Thanks, you, you too. Know, yeah. On day three. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, the end is inside. I know, right? We can, we can get there. We can yeah. get across the line. 100%. 100%. <laughs> thanks very much. Okay. Well, thanks, gents. And, of course, thanks to everyone who's listening to this episode. And we'll be back in the not-too-distant future with another informative discussion. But for now, uh, take care out there, and uh, let's hope for some more good industry news soon. The ADM Podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa Media title. 
The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.